And we have another large bank failure, but stocks have yet to wake up to this fact. And why is it that every major asset class is trading in a range? I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and BS. I'm Graham Summers, and once again, we're talking about bank failures. As I'm recording this, First Republic, which I believe is the third largest U.S. bank to ever fail, is being acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase. Or at least J.P. Morgan Chase is acquiring a majority of First Republic's assets. And what a sweetheart deal it's going to end up being. The FDIC is going to cover $13 billion in losses and provide $50 billion in financing. And because of this, J.P. Morgan's able to acquire many of these assets at a ridiculously low price with almost no risk. And they've already stated that they believe they will generate a one-time gain of $2.6 billion on the deal. So this really raises the question of how the heck are you going to solve anything related to regional banks when the big banks are now fully aware that the smart thing for them to do is wait until the regional bank completely collapses, nobody comes forward, the FDIC can't support the thing, and then show up to rescue and buy it for pennies on the dollar. J.P. Morgan got an absolutely sweetheart deal here, and it's basically socialized losses, meaning that the FDIC and the U.S. will absorb the problems and the toxic assets, while J.P. Morgan makes off like a bandit acquiring the high-quality assets for pennies on the dollar. It's a ridiculous situation, but it goes back to one of the central themes we've been talking about this year, which is that the rise in interest rates is presenting a major problem to smaller regional banks. By quick way of review, this is how this whole situation works. The way banks traditionally make money is you put a deposit in the bank, the bank pays you a small interest rate on that deposit, and then the bank turns around and loans out or acquires five, seven, or even ten dollars worth of long-term assets whether they be loans or U.S. treasuries or some other long-term bond. Now, this works fine as long as interest rates are low, but when they're not like today and you've got interest rates between 4 and 5%, it becomes a major problem. Because unless that bank is willing to pay depositors 4 or 5%, depositors are going to say, why am I sitting with my money in this bank? I'm only earning 0.1%, but if I go and put my money in a money market account or a short-term T-bill, I can make 4 or 5%, and that person's going to take their money out of the bank. And when that happens, due to capital requirements, the bank is going to have to unload the 5 or 7 or $10 that it's made in loans, or the 5 or 7 or $10 that it's acquired in long-duration assets. The problem here is that the bank has to sell that stuff regardless of how it's doing. So even if this stuff's trading at a loss, the bank has to sell it, which means the bank has to record a loss which can get investors' attention that the bank might be in trouble, which can result in more money fleeing the bank, and it becomes a vicious cycle. 
Now, remember, this is not a small issue. There's five and a half trillion dollars sitting in deposits at regional and smaller banks in this country. And a lot of this money is choosing to leave these deposits, which is forcing the banks that own the deposits or were holding the deposits to sell off their loans and their long duration assets, which is forcing these banks to have to record losses. Remember, the way this stuff works is banks are allowed to post what's called an unrealized loss or a paper loss. It's not the same thing as when they actually hit sell. So think of it this way. Let's say the bank owns an asset and that asset loses 10%. Let's say the asset's worth $100 million. So the bank's technically sitting on a $10 million loss. The loss is not yet realized until the bank has to hit sell. Now, remember, the majority of these long-duration assets that these banks own are long-term bonds or long-term loans. And last year was the worst year on record for long-term treasuries, and many debt securities followed. I believe long-term treasuries lost 30% in 2022. So put simply, many banks in this country are currently sitting on unrealized losses that are quite large. And the only way they're able to get around this issue surfacing, and don't get me wrong, they're not hiding this stuff illegally, it's in their balance sheets, but they don't have to publish it or like put it in the headlines. The only way it grabs the headlines is if the bank starts losing depositors en masse and the bank is forced to have to sell this stuff, at which point it has to record the loss. So I really don't see a solution to this problem. Now, I'm not saying we're in some kind of, you know, massive crisis and everything's about to collapse. I'm just saying that their business model currently doesn't work very well. The only real solution they have is for them to start raising the interest rates that they pay on deposits to be more competitive. But that shrinks their profit margins because, again, the way they make money is they pay a small interest rate on a deposit and then they pay, they earn a larger interest rate on their loans or long duration assets. The only real beneficiaries of this whole situation are the big banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and the like. And the reason they are going to do well from this is, first of all, these are the largest, most financially stable institutions in the country. They're deemed systemically important by the Fed and the regulators, which means that the Fed and the regulators will come rushing to support them if they get into trouble. And consequently, money is going to flee smaller banks and go to the big players because they're deemed as more safe, more stable, and they've got a direct line to the Treasury and the Fed. The other way that they are going to benefit is in similar deals like the one we just saw with JP Morgan and First Republic. The big banks now know that the regulators have neither the capital financial capital, that is, or political capital to bail out these regional banks that are in trouble. So the big banks just have to sit quietly, wait for a regional bank to get into serious trouble, and then show up to save the day at the very last minute, provided the regulators absorb the losses. And that's exactly what just happened with J.P. Morgan and First Republic. J.P. Morgan's going to make several billion dollars off this deal, and that's not even counting how the assets that it's acquiring perform going forward. Now, having said all of this, it's kind of striking. According to some data I just read, the first, the three banks that failed this year, which are Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic, are actually larger than the 25 that collapsed in 2008. Collectively, these three banks have $532 billion in assets. So this is not a small problem. And it's hard to say that this situation is going to end anytime soon. Because as I said, The business model for small regional banks simply doesn't work very well anymore in this current environment. So that's really the situation there. Now, having said this, 
All of these situations sound kind of hairy, but the stock market doesn't even seem to care in the slightest. As I'm recording this, the S&P 500 is trading around 4,170. And in fact, it's trading at the upper end of its range for its forward multiples valuation. As I've been saying over the last month or so, the S&P 500 is currently trading at between 16 and 18 times forward earnings for 2023. In terms of actual price levels, that's between 3600 and 4150 on the S&P 500. And the reason this is happening is because the bond market has stabilized. The situation is as such. Every asset class ultimately derives its value on a relative basis based on what the risk-free rate of return is, which is established by the yields on U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, U.S. Treasury bonds collapsed in 2022 by quite a lot, partially due to inflation and partially due to the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is our central bank, raising interest rates aggressively. At the start of 2022, interest rates were at 0.25%. The Fed has now raised them up to 5%. And as a result, remember, bond yields rise when bond prices fall. Bond prices, specifically Treasury prices, fell, forcing yields higher. And this re resulted in every asset class having to be repriced. If you can earn 5% on Treasury, stocks are not as attractive on a growth basis. And consequently, the stock market was repriced lower from a forward earnings multiple of 20 to 22 times earnings down to 16 to 18 times earnings. Now, Treasury yields peaked in October of 2022, and since that time, they've stabilized. They've been trading in a wide range. This stability has suggested to many market participants that rates will not be going a whole lot higher, at least for now. And that is resulting in investors starting to move back into stocks. The reason they're moving back into stocks is A, they think the inflation situation's under control. It isn't. And B, because they believe that the U.S. economy will tip over into recession sometime in the near future, which means the Federal Reserve will need to start easing again or cutting rates, and that that's going to increase the multiple at which stocks will be valued. So it's kind of like, think of it this way, investors are front-running what they think the Fed's going to be doing later this year. The big problem with this whole theory is that it's not clear that the Fed's going to be doing this this year because inflation is not going away. Yesterday, we saw the release of what's called the PMI, which is the Purchasing Managers Index. It's essentially a survey-based economic indicator that asks people who work at companies and acquire goods and services for those companies what's going on. There's a bunch of components to this metric, but the critical ones we want to focus on are prices paid, which is essentially what the managers being interviewed say they're paying on goods and services, and the actual data headline itself, which is sort of the economic activity measure, if you will. The economic activity measure, which is the headline number, came in at 50.2. 50.4 was expected. Doesn't seem like a big disappointment, but the point is that the economic activity wasn't as aggressive as thought. By the way, anything below 50 is thought to represent a contraction, which is recessionary. The other component that came in was the prices paid component. That came in at 53.2 and 49 was expected. So if you look at this data as a whole, it indicates that economic activity is lower than people expect and inflation is higher than they expect, which means something similar to stagflation, weak economy, higher inflation. 
And that would be very problematic for anybody who wants to buy stocks right now based on their belief that the Fed's going to be cutting rates aggressively. The point with everything I'm really trying to say here is that there's a lot of risks in the system right now. There's the regional banking issue, there's inflation which hasn't gone away, and there's the sign that the economy is weak. The economy hasn't gone into a recession yet, but there's multiple signs that it will sometime in the next 12 months. And so anybody who's doing this thing of buying stocks right now because they believe a bottom's in and because the Fed's going to ease as the recession takes hold is likely not doing themselves any favors. Don't get me wrong, there's certainly plenty of trades to be made, but the idea that it's a fantastic time to be loading up on stocks with the bulk of your portfolio, especially if you're someone who doesn't want to be riding out a recession and a collapse in the next 18 months, I think is misguided. Now, in terms of indications of when the recession is actually going to hit, perhaps the best metric for us to look at is commodities, specifically oil. If you spend any time on social media and the financial circles these days, you're probably hearing reports that oil is going to spike higher. We're going to go to $200 a barrel. We're going to see some massive price spike. And it's possible that could happen. But in the current situation, oil peaked at $130 a barrel in March of 2022, and it's essentially just got dropped like a stone ever since in a very clear downtrend. It hit a low of $65 a barrel, essentially losing 50% of its value in about one year's time. We had this big jump from OPEC cutting production by 2 million barrels a day, but now oil's still hovering around $75 a barrel. So essentially what I'm trying to say here is oil hasn't really done anything since the end of 2021. It was trading around this price at that time. We saw a big spike with the invasion of Ukraine, but since that time, oil's been declining. Now, if we're seeing high inflation and oil's declining, that would suggest demand destruction or the idea that there's not as much demand for oil. Remember, oil is perhaps the most economically sensitive commodity on the planet. Another economically sensitive commodity is copper. This bottomed in July of 2022, around $3.20 a pound, and it's since risen to today where it's around $4 a pound. Now, that's a bit of an uptrend, but you have to remember, copper remains significantly below where it was trading through most of 2021 and 2022. This again tells us that the economy is not as strong as one would think, and that in fact, there's demand destruction. So copper and oil are two commodities worth watching. When a recession finally does hit, you should see both of them collapse quite a bit. And given the way they're trading, it looks as though that's not that far away. So this is something I'm keeping an eye on for signs that the recession has finally arrived. Really, in the most simple terms, nothing's really changed or happened since about October of 2022. That's when bond yields peaked. And since that time, everything's just been a gigantic chop fest. Yes, there have been some stocks that erupted higher. And yes, the market as a whole is a bit higher than it was at that time, but nothing really major has happened. Everything's been in a large consolidation. This has been the case for oil. It's been the case for bond yields. It's been the case for stocks. It's just one gigantic chop fest where things are trading in a range. And the reason things are trading in a range is because there isn't any clear data yet showing us that there's a definitive recession or that inflation is definitively coming down. And so consequently, you just see things moving back from one end of the range to the other based on what the latest data is showing. It's really quite boring, to be honest, and it's certainly enticing to want to move back into stocks or to do something because it's hard to just sit still for this time. 
But the reality, this is how these things normally go. Whenever an asset class collapses in a really historic fashion, it doesn't immediately go and do something aggressive the year afterwards. 2022 was a very strange year because we had a massive collapse that had a V bottom in the stock market. But that was because the Federal Reserve essentially backstopped everything in order to override the economic collapse brought about by the shutdowns from the pandemic. That is not how things normally happen. Normally, when you get a major collapse, after that collapse, there's kind of a, a, a bounce or some sort of consolidation, and then much later, something else happens, whether you get a recovery or you get an additional collapse. So that's really what's going on here, is we're having a traditional historical pattern that's played out many times, and the reason it was such a major impact for everybody in 2022 is that the asset class that was affected was U.S. Treasuries, and those are the bedrock of the financial system. So think of it this way. The most important asset class in the world collapsed by a historic amount last year. That collapse has ended. We've now seen some stability. And so everything's just kind of chopping around. And there's no real clear direct. This is why, despite the fact that the market's trying to convince you it's exciting time again, it really isn't. And in fact, that's something of a, a facade. The reality is that the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 are accounting for over 85% of the total return this year. Let me explain how this works. So there's 500 companies in the S&P 500, and there's two ways that they're weighted. One is called the equal weighting, which is simply that all 500 receive the exact same weight for the index. And then there's the standard weighting, which is the one everyone pays attention to. The standard weighting allocates much more weight to large companies. And because we're in this day and age in which certain companies trade at $1 or $2 trillion, but most don't, you've got this environment in which the top 10, per, top 10 stocks in the index in terms of weighting account for over 25% of its total weight. And in fact, the top 2%, which are Apple and Microsoft, alone account for 14% of its weight. Because of this... And because the large tech stocks have been doing relatively well in the last few months, they're accounting for almost all of the market's return. If you think about all 500 companies in the S&P 500, the vast majority of them, meaning over 480 of them, aren't doing that fantastically. But the top 10 or 20 of them is masking this because they're doing very well and be those companies receive the most weight in the index, so they make the index appear to be doing quite well. If you compare a chart of the S&P 500 to an equal weighted S&P 500, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, as a final point, I wanted to address why inflation isn't going away. Because we've received some questions, if the Fed's raised rates by more than ever in history in a 12-month period, shouldn't inflation have completely crumbled? The answer to that, and it's the thing that nobody wants to say in the media because it attacks the Biden White House, is that the Biden administration is currently engaged in massive fiscal stimulus. They're running $1.2 trillion deficits. They're spending money like there's no tomorrow. Now, I'm not just trying to throw stones at Biden. Trump was even worse. During the depth of the pandemic, he was running $3 trillion deficits. So think of it this way. Basically, since the coronavirus pandemic, the government has been spending money like there's no tomorrow. And in fact, it's spent more money and printed more money than the U.S. Federal Reserve did. And you can't really bring inflation down when you're flooding the economy with spending and liquidity. 
So think of it this way. All of the Fed's balance sheet reduction has essentially been erased by what the Treasury and the federal government are doing in terms of stimulus and drawing down the Treasury's general account. So you can't really say, oh, I'm going to get inflation under control by hiking rates when you're printing money like there's no tomorrow to finance massive social spending. And that's exactly what's happening right now in our economy. The only way that you could see inflation really come down would be if the U.S. government cut back on its fiscal spending, but the likelihood of that is negligible. And then if you bear in mind the fact that the Fed's willing to stop on a dime and start expanding its balance sheet, as it did when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, you've got a recipe for sticky inflation that's just not going to go away. The only way it's really going to go away, especially if you've got this degree of fiscal spending, is if you have a truly severe recession that's so massive that demand destruction just overrides everything else, and then eventually inflation comes down. That's an ugly scenario and not one that I hope happens, but that's just the reality of what we're dealing with here. So here's the big picture for the financial system as a kind of conclusion. Bond yields stabilized starting in October of last year. And since that time, risk assets have done relatively well because it looks as though yields won't be rising much in the near future, which means that the S&P 500 is priced at a correct multiple and consequently, people are being a little bit more aggressive with risk-taking. The risk-taking is also involving investors piling into large-cap tech because they're seeing that as a safe haven, especially with the debt ceiling situation going on. And consequently, because the S&P 500 is heavily weighted towards large tech, when those companies rally, the market as a whole goes up, despite the fact that most companies, as in over 480 of them, are not doing so well. The economy is weak, but it's yet to break down into an absolutely clear recession. And part of the reason for this is because of rates. The wealthy, the top 20% of this country, are earning a much higher return on their cash. This is allowing them to have excess savings and excess spending. But the bottom 70 to 80% of the country is struggling with inflation. So we've got this very weak economy, but it's one in which it hasn't really rolled over into a recession yet. And because bond yields have stabilized, everyone's just sort of trading ranges, but there really isn't an aggressive buy or sell trigger at this exact moment. That's the big picture for the financial system. Nothing's really changed. And honestly, it's just a giant chop fest. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. <laughs>